I'm Siham Sireen, and you are here for Better Conversations. So I thought, well, the problem here is lunch. If I want to have an hour or an hour and a half with them, they need to eat. So I emailed all of the board and I said to them, I, I, I tipped my client off that I was going to do this beforehand and she was terrified at the idea. But I emailed all of the board and said, tomorrow's or Wednesday's workshop is going to be a bring your own buffet. I'd like you to make some food and bring it in to share with your friends. And I used that exact wording, wording that wouldn't be weird if it weren't in the corporate world. And the response was amazing. My client said to me, oh my God, I can't believe you've said that. Whenever I was in the headquarters, because I was in the headquarters all that week, people say, oh my, it's been nice working with you. You're obviously going to get fired over that. And then I'd get lots of uh, emails from PAs saying, does Bob need to do this? Because Bob's really senior. And I was replying saying, well, yeah, if Bob wants to eat, he, he needs to bring some food in. While we're gifted with speech, conversations, really good conversations, don't happen as much as we'd like. In this podcast, my guest and I deep dive into all the corners of what makes a conversation awkward and uncomfortable, or warming and memorable. Guest is Steve Chapman. Steve is an artist, writer, and speaker interested in creativity and the human condition. And from conversations with him to date, he has a certain comfort being in the space of not knowing. And so this is going to be a really interesting exploration. He speaks to organizations over 80 to date around the world on the subject of human creativity. His remit has been to help them nurture a culture of creative freedom. As an artist, he sold his work across five continents and exhibited alongside the likes of Pablo Picasso and David Trigley. He's also uh, a visiting faculty on a number of well-regarded organizational change and coaching MSc programs where he teaches spontaneity, creativity, and not knowing. Hello, Steve. Hello. So lovely to be here. Delighted that you're here. So it seems that you are at your best when you're not quite sure what you're doing. And for a lot of listeners, that would be quite an uncomfortable place to be. Yeah. And it's, I think when people hear that, they assume that I'm comfortable with it. But it's, um, it's always uncomfortable to be on that edge of not knowing, I think. But I describe it as it just becomes more familiar. So it's a familiar discomfort. And I know that it's a discomfort that's worth enduring, a bit like if you run or if you exercise. Um, you get that little bit of discomfort, it just means you're pushing, pushing that edge a bit. Let's get into a little bit your work and what you do with these organisations and why it's so important to kind of nurture that creative freedom. What is it? You know, when you go in, what are you, what's, what are you trying to do and what's their expectation? Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a, a big question, isn't it? It's, um, it's changed over the years, I think. So I spent, I went straight from school into working in a factory. 
and then 20 years later left that organization as uh, global director of leadership and OD. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the, in the corporate world. And it's only really on coming out of it that you start to see uh, the, sort of some of the habits, some of the patterns, some of the traditions that are helpful but also unhelpful. So pretty much when I'm going into an organization nowadays, it's, it's something that they want to shift in their culture or the way they work or they have a sense that there's something there's more to life than this as an organization. And sometimes it's couched in the, in the idea of, right, we want to become more innovative or more creative or we want, we want more ideas from our people. We want our people to be empowered. Um, and other times it may be a more subtle thing than that. So really what I'm doing is I'm, the way I love to work is to come alongside them, to be curious with them, and just to notice what are the, the subtle patterns of human interaction that if we experiment and disrupt and disturb them, something else might happen. Um, I, I can't use that language in the very first meeting because I never get through the door. So it's normally, <laughs> I think this is an important right. thing in my work is this idea of pacing and leading. So I normally talk about innovation change, culture change, but really what I'm thinking is what, what are these fundamental, subtle interactions here that are keeping everything the way that it's always been? And is that about them being stuck in a certain groove? It, there's a there's a, a way of interacting that's kind of become almost automatic? I'm careful to say with all of this that this, this way of thinking doesn't make anything good or bad. It's either helpful, more helpful, or more unhelpful. And human beings gravitate towards the familiar. I mean, I know I, know I, I do. This is the, the tussle we seem to have between creativity and the human condition, as I refer to it. And creativity is that our imaginations pull towards the novel, the experimental, the different. But the human condition is that comfort we have in the familiar. So even if you get a bunch of human beings with no structure, and I will often experiment with this in workshops, it won't take long for everyone to negotiate a new familiar structure. So it tends to be what I'm working with organizations on is to bring to their awareness their own unique patterns of stuckness and find ways of disturbing them. And a pattern of stuckness isn't necessarily bad because that will maintain the status quo. But what I often find is that an organization will want to change, but really it doesn't because there's, there's far more comfort in the familiar stuck patterns than there is in that scariness of not knowing. And the people that take part in the work that you do, the employees within the organization, what do they become aware of? about themselves and I guess yeah just about themselves you, you learn as we go through this interview I never have a straightforward answer to anything um, <laughs> That's okay. but what tends to happen is um, I mean many people just say this is this is ridiculous this is the most pointless stupid thing ever and that's that's also fine that's that's a realization in my book that's a that's a helpful bit of awareness what tends to happen and there's a big uh, retailer I worked with over the space of four years on innovation in inverted commas many of the employees started to realize um, how inhibited they are in their lives in general start to realize that this idea of creativity isn't everyone running around being able to paint masterpieces but it's just a live expression a live uninhibited expression of oneself 
But then what they very rapidly realize is, actually, I can't be like myself around here. I can't be like that around here. So having liberated them, you're then confronted with the whole thing of, hold on a minute, I can't be like that around here. So one of the important things, the conversations that I have early on with those in positions of power, positions of status, normally the people commissioning the work, is this isn't going to work if it's just me trying to change your employees because they're going to very soon realize that you're the problem, that the culture is the problem. So that tends to be the general pattern. And the things that work well is when everyone is in it together. So everyone from the board, from the people that are commissioning the work, um, everyone's in this messy space together. And what's that about? Why is it? Why is that piece important? Why are they all in it together? Well, I think, again, it's if we think of, there's a, there's a dominant myth, I think, that an organisation is a real, tangible, solid thing. And of course, there are buildings, there are offices, there are photocopiers, there are org charts. But really, the organisation doesn't exist in the way that we think of it. The organisation is a live patterning of human interaction. Therefore, you can't just shift one bit of it. And quite often, the brief that I'm getting is, I want them to come up with more ideas for me, but I don't want to change. Because the things that tend to inhibit, so if you imagine you're an employee and you suddenly realize your creative potential, the things that would then inhibit you doing that in the workplace is... I mean, pretty much what, what we're asking people to do to, when we're asking them to be innovative, when we're asking them to be creative, is to go against the grain, to be countercultural, to do something that's not welcome around here, something that's not necessarily rewarded. And it's a difficult position as an employee because effectively you're being asked to disrupt, you've been asked to bite the hand that feeds you, um, for want of a better analogy. And... Well, this, this tends to be suggestion schemes is an example that I'll use is the reason why suggestion schemes tend to not work is because, well, firstly, it assumes the problem is no one has a box to put their ideas in, which is rarely what the problem is. But then people will put stuff into the suggestion scheme that they think will please the people running the suggestion scheme. So you just get more and more of the same. So the whole idea of working in this way, and some of the principles that I use is, um, for employees to be 10% more mad, bad, and wrong. So to, to deliberately give them permission to be countercultural. But if the moment they experiment in that way, they're told, no, 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 that's not the type of creativity we want, or um, they get punished, or they get sacked for experimenting, the whole thing falls apart. So it's about finding this sweet spot, a sweet spot of what I call safe uncertainty, where you can experiment without fear of reprisal, but also without those leading the organization um, having fear of complete, uh, complete catastrophe, if that makes any sense. Hmm. It sounds like on the, yeah, on the one side, you know, we're trying to encourage employees to be experimental, but that requires taking a risk and landing somewhere relatively safe. And those in power allowing space for that to happen and, and, not responding right away what is it is required of them in order to make this sort of experimentation work yeah and it's a brilliant question and i think it's unique for every situation but if i I'll tell a specific story that always comes to mind and this was working with a big global retailer so i'd spent about a year 
working with the employees, a series of workshops, a series of action learning uh, sets, a series of experiments with, with customers, with suppliers. Again, around this experimentation, this experimentation to try and break stuck patterns. I prefer to try and avoid, if I can, the formal systems of getting engaged in work because I understand why procurement systems are there, but at a philosophical level, they're there to keep everything the same. Um, because if there's, if there's truly a novel idea, it won't get through the procurement systems because it can't demonstrate the, the requirements that are required. So I've been working with this retailer for um, probably about a year, maybe a year and a half, for about 20 or 30 workshops with people that were working in the retail stores, with suppliers and everything else. And at that point, management and the board became really interested because they could see something interesting going on which is brilliant. They're already bought in. There's not a hard sell to do. So they said to me, uh, could I come and do a presentation to them about what was going on? And in that moment, as a consultant, you're always presented with a choice of, do I do that or do I really stick to the principles of this work and, and say, no, um, I'm not going to come and do a presentation, but you can come and play with us. You come and be part of the work that we're doing. And luckily, I had a great um, HR colleague in, internally who managed to facilitate that. So I was supposed to have um, two hours with a board, and I was going to invite some employees along. We were just going to experiment. The board were going to do exactly the same work that the employees were. And then the inevitable happened. I think it was two weeks before the, um, uh, before the workshop. I got an email saying they've only got an hour now. Um, <laughs> I think it started off as a half day, and it went down to three hours. Then it was, we've only got an hour and a bit now. Mm. And then the killer blow was um, literally the day before, a couple of days before, I got another email saying, and they need to take their lunch break in that time. And I mean, part of me is thinking, yes, these are busy people, but part of me is thinking this is a defense of some sort that they're not even aware of. It's a defense against anxiety here. And they also need to eat. So I had a, I had a choice there between throwing my toys out of the pram and saying, I'll oh, forget it. Um, or this is, this is sort of the, the artist, the improviser's mindset is thinking, what's the offer here? How can I use this situation as a helpful thing? So I thought, well, the problem here is lunch. If I want to have an hour or an hour and a half with them, they need to eat. So I emailed all of the board and I said to them, I, I, I tipped my client off that I was going to do this beforehand and she was terrified at the idea. But I emailed all of the board and said, Tomorrow's or Wednesday's workshop is going to be a bring your own buffet. I'd like you to make some food and bring it in to share with your friends. And I use that exact wording, wording that wouldn't be weird if it weren't in the corporate world. And the response was amazing. My client said to me, oh, my God, I can't believe you've said that. Whenever I was in the headquarters, because I was in the headquarters all that week, people say, oh, my, it's been nice working with you. You're, <laughs> you're obviously going to get fired over that. And then I'd get lots of uh, emails from PAs saying, does Bob need to do this? Because Bob's really senior. And I was replying saying, well, yeah, if Bob wants to eat, he, he needs to bring some food in. And then on the day I went into this room and a number of PAs came in with trays of sandwiches and stuff. They'd obviously just bought in. I mean, this shouldn't be a problem. This is a food retail company. And then a couple of people came in and uh, one woman had made plantains because she was from the Caribbean. It's made these wonderful plantains and someone else had made like a quiche. And then another, another one came in and it was looking very awkward and I just bought a sandwich and didn't know what to do. And then the, the MD came in 
And he said, what's all this? I didn't know anything about this. I would have made something at home. And he'd been totally protected from this weird idea. And then all we did for the next hour is ate lunch and spoke about the experience being asked to bring lunch. And I told stories of what the employees had said to me, how terrified they were in me asking some human beings to eat lunch together. And the biggest impact there was everyone around the table going, are we really that scary? But why did we find this whole concept of bringing lunch to eat together so difficult? And why are our employees so terrified at asking us these things? And I think in, I could never have designed an intervention as powerful as that. It was accidental. It came from, from desperation. But I think in that, that demonstrates brilliantly the types of things that get in the way that no one's really aware of. Wow, I, I'm listening to you and I got goosebumps listening to that uh, story um, on for lots of reasons. Um, so I'm going to try and slow down and take a sip of water quickly as well. Yeah, something so simple and and yet, you know, the awareness that um, that you managed to bring about for them. It, it is, it's quite incredible. It's It's familiar. You know, in terms of uh, I, I've seen that behaviour, that fear, the the sort of uh, protecting the senior leaders, and it's um, that doesn't just happen. That's a that's something that kind of establishes itself right within an organisation, and yet taking taking that whole thing is kind of genius. Um, that scenario and and working with it. So what? I'm still processing, but what was the, was there a longer term impact of that? One of the things, just I'm hearing you playing that back, that building up to that session and during that session, it, the whole time in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm going to get fired for this. I mean, not fired because I don't work for the company. And I think that's a really important thing if we're, we're consulting on culture change is that dance of always being on the edge of being fired. Not being anarchic, but culture change should look, smell, and feel countercultural. <laughs> that just seems obvious to me. So throughout that whole thing, I was taking a big risk. And I think that's one of the big things that, that really helped in that moment, was particularly the, the, the MD and a few of the senior folk is seeing that I was taking a massive risk there um, and embodying that. And so that because I like to work in that way. I like to be in it with people rather than I'm a service provider that has answers that you're going to buy with your implement because that's a nonsense. And I think for the, the CEO, it was uh, the, the MD, it was a moment of being undeniably confronted with his power and status. And he's a lovely guy, but he still had this power and status. Even if he didn't want it, he's projected onto him. And I think from that moment, there was a, a small group of that, that, that um, board really got what we were trying to do and really became curious and I encouraged them to, to have conversations, a different type of conversation with, um, with their employees around, why do we scare you so much? And at the same time, uh, a faction of that group just thought the whole thing was ridiculous, was pointless. How dare me? How dare I ask them to bring sandwiches in? So it's never... I. I like the rule of thirds, I call it, that any sort of intervention like that, a third of the people are going, wow, that's really 
made me aware of something important. A third are left in a state of going, I have no idea what that was. I'm totally confused. And a third are going, this is ridiculous. So I think that's, that's a pretty realistic hit rate rather than the illusion of everyone's left changed by one workshop. If that were the case, if I often say to organizations, if culture change that was that easy and that impactful and that sustainable, I'd be working with the UN, not with you, because then I could change the world. But it just doesn't work that way. Mm. There is a fear, isn't there? And you talked about it, you know, in terms of when you made the request for them to make lunch, make, you know, bring food along. And even before that, I think you were saying they kind of starting to backtrack and, and their initial interest and enthusiasm kind of quickly waned, um, potentially because they were protecting themselves. Was it they were protecting themselves from... What do you think they were protecting themselves from? I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but it's... At it, it one level, it's like when organisations say, we want to do some creative work, but we don't have the budget for it. And I always think, you do have the budget, you just don't want to spend it on this because you're making other things more important. And I think that was, that was their sophisticated defence routine, was this doesn't seem to us like important senior work. Um, so let's deprioritize it. And I don't think they consciously would have, would have thought that. But one of the biggest influences when I was um, studying was uh, Ralph Stacey, who wrote a lot about complexity of Hertfordshire. And he said most of the traditions that organizations undertake are institutionalized defenses against anxiety. So a lot of our clamoring for structure and clamoring for order and clamoring for routine the very professional, senior way that things happen, it's, there's not going to be a clear answer here, but it's a defense against anxiety. And there's something around shoring up our identity as a senior person, that as you progress up the ladder, the various things, various things change. And part of it, I wonder if there's a, there's, it taps into a vulnerable part that bringing in food to share with your friends, I mean, and that language was, was very deliberate, is, hold on, these are other human beings around the table. That's what the language friends suggests. And to bring in food requires me to make a choice. And if you watch something like Come Dine With Me, my daughter loves Come Dine With Me, it's the food you present says something about you. So I think there was a load of things in there that were triggered. And also for the PAs, this whole thing of the gatekeepers to, to access to the senior folk. And I, and I see that so often. So it's a sort of well-rehearsed routine that no one knows how well-rehearsed it is, I think. It is. It's, uh, it's the way things are. And I guess that's why they're bringing you in to try it. They recognize that, that something isn't quite working and they can't get the innovation or the creativity that that maybe what they're they're seeing looking externally and going how come other companies can be so spontaneous or creative is that is that what it is i think there's part of uh, I, I worked for years when i was internal with um in the field of lean six sigma so the whole idea of reducing variability um reducing process steps to make more efficient processes and because i grew up in manufacturing i knew a lot about manufacturing and I partnered with a guy, um, a Vietnamese guy called Tung, who was ex-Toyota. 
Uh, Tung would teach us how to do the Lean Six Sigma part, and then my job was the sort of culture change, human part of it. And what Tung used to say, he he was amazing. He says, the reason why Toyota's factories are open and anyone can go and see the production lines and anyone can go, even competitors can go and watch it, is because they won't see what it is. They will steal the wrong things. And the company I worked for did that. They'd go and see these standard work processes. They'd see these visual display boards. They see these routines that, that all the production operators did but not realize the fundamental thing that made it work in Toyota. And again, this was 20 years ago. I have no idea what Toyota's like now. But the the fundamental thing that made it work in Toyota was the moment-by-moment spontaneous interaction between the people that work together. And that's largely invisible. You you wouldn't be able to see that. Um, And I think what tries to happen is, is because we're clinging for the tangible, that's, that's all we can... That's all we can take. I mean, you'd be imagine if you went on holiday, if I went to, I don't know, the Caribbean, and I had an amazing time, and I come back and showed you some photos. You might think, oh, right, the answer to, to having a relaxing time is palm trees. We need to plant some palm trees because the palm trees are in the photos. And it wouldn't make any difference because the, the thing that made the difference was more amorphous, was more intangible. Um. Reflecting on, as I'm listening to you, where you drew your interest and your passion in in this spontaneous way of being, what made you realise that it was it had value? I was I was thinking about this the other day, and there literally was one talk that I went to that changed everything for me. Um, so I went, uh, I was highly creative and spontaneous as a child up to about the age of 11. And then I left secondary school feeling uncreative and thick and stupid. School just didn't work for me. And then going straight into the world of work and being able to work with people, I was continually getting promoted. Uh, but with this huge imposter syndrome, thinking like, I've got no qualifications, someone's going to find me out. And that's when I became interested in the in the world of organization development and change. And I did lots of training in various different change methodologies. Um, it shows how long ago it was, things like Cotter's Seven Steps and various, various models of change. And I could never get any of them to work in the way that the model said they should work. So I'd, I'd look at it on paper and then I'd apply it exactly as I was taught, thinking, why isn't this working? And the way I am, I will assume that I'm stupid um, rather than blame the model. And then there was one day my boss couldn't go to a talk um, that was about changing complexity and said, do you want to go? And I thought, no, going to talks isn't my thing. It was a long drive and I couldn't be bothered. But I went anyway, and thank heavens I did. And it was a talk by uh, Professor Bill Critchley and Karen Vanston from Ashridge Business School. And they spoke about organizations as a complex social process and change happening through spontaneous interaction and how patterns were formed and how patterns are disturbed. They spoke about patterns of power and status and this idea of reification of what I call thingifying organizations and wondering why change doesn't happen. I remember sitting in the audience and just thinking, oh my God, I'm not thick. It's these models that are ridiculous. (laughs) This suddenly all makes sense to me. Mm. What a load of nonsense I've been eating. This diet of the theory I've been eating. 
And I went up to, to Bill afterwards and just said, uh, Bill, can I hang out with you a lot and buy you lots of coffees and ask you lots of questions? And this was, I don't know, this must have been 20 years ago, and Bill and I are still friends. That led me into a whole different way of thinking. That uh, Bill convinced me to go to Ashridge and do the Masters in Organizational Change, which I, I really didn't want to because I really didn't think I was academic. But again, my whole experience of those two years at Ashridge, and I wrote my dissertation on spontaneity, was just really starting to get a sense of how I see the world, of how I see human interaction, of how I see culture. Um, and it was that that started to shift it. And my dissertation, I wrote my dissertation on, I think it was um, 120 seconds of my life that I recorded um, in various meetings and stuff. And then got incredibly interested about the richness and texture of those 120 seconds. And my methodology for, for research was I learned improv and performed improv on stage um, in front of people. So I could really embody it. Mm. And from that moment, it, I mean, the talk triggered it. From that moment, it's, it completely shifted my perspective. It's where I became interested in Gestalt psychology. It's where I became interested in Zen philosophy. Anything that is looking at the phenomenology of the, of the current moment. And I think awareness at that level is really hard to undo. So I often explain to people, there's not a, a theory or a model that I use. It's just a, an, a solid underpinning philosophy that I have that informs literally everything that I do. But I'm so grateful to a, my boss at the time for not, not being bothered to go to that talk and then for the support that Bill and everyone at Ashridge gave me ever since. It's incredible. It's a shift, isn't it? It's a shift from an over-reliance on structure and formula and so on, things that are supposed to give certainty and give us some comfort to a comfort with just, it sounds to me like just being, being in the present, seeing what that feels like, where that might take you, um, there's a wholeness, isn't there, uh, to where am I? What, what am I doing? What am I feeling? What's my reaction? What am I noticing? It's, it is that wholeness, isn't it? That whole presence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you, you described it far better than I could there. It's, and I'm not anti-structure because immediately um, <laughs> I normally get back, well, we need plans, we need, we need uh, structures, we need those things, and I don't deny that. It's just hold them lightly because they're not real. It's there, I often say an org chart is a serving suggestion for how you interact in the moment. It's not real. It doesn't really exist. There's not people sitting on these different bits, even if we construct the buildings in a way to pretend they do. And it's this whole idea of um, uh, the map is not the territory. The, have these structures. And I, I like structure in my life. I think without certain structures, I'd be incredibly anxious. But I know that a lot of the structures aren't aren't real. They just help me help me function, and I think that's that's the sweet spot. Yeah, and that's the question that I'm always asking: is how is this helpful? Because if it's helpful, let's not change it. Because there's a whole movement around let's disrupt everything. That's 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 disruption for the sake of it. If something's helpful, then fine, keep it. But if it's ultimately unhelpful, or or what tends to happen is organisations will accidentally create paradox. And particularly when it comes to creativity and innovation, the paradox is normally this, which is, and I've heard 
I heard the CEO of a big company tell this to his top 200 leaders at a conference. We want creativity and innovation, but we also mustn't take any risks. We mustn't mess anything up. But we, we need structure and certainty and innovate at the same time. And again, what I spoke about, that tension between creativity and the human condition, because of the way we're wired um, psychologically and socially, that, that safety will always win out in a situation like that. So it's rare, and I work with very few organizations now, because whilst I could do with the money of working with loads, I, I think it's ethically and just for, for my own motivation, I can't go into a piece of work where I fundamentally don't think it's going to work, where I fundamentally don't think we're going to work beyond this illusion with organizations. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's almost like the more senior people become, the more anxious and need for certainty they need because of what they're expected to deliver. I'm bored with talking politics, but you see it with, with politicians as well, is irrelevant of, I'll, I'll make this like politically agnostic, irrelevant of what you think of the current government, to speak to the nation on camera, it's just like a minefield, isn't it? You, could you really say, oh, I'm feeling, ro- feeling ro- vulnerable right now? And you'd, be, you'd be slaughtered by the press and everyone. And it must be a similar thing for senior leaders where, I mean, the senior leaders talk about it being a lonely place. Just to say, I genuinely don't know, or this worries me, or even I'm excited about this, but not in a, in a soundbite way. And this is this whole dance of, of power and status. Um, even if, I always say this to, to, to leaders that I'm coaching, it, they, they may be the nicest, uh, nicest person around. They may be the most empowering, empathic person around, but their people will still project power onto them. And power only exists if there's a mutual agreement. And it's normally, it's normally people aren't aware of this. So someone is a position of power and people act into that position of power. If either party doesn't act into that position of power, then it doesn't exist. That's how revolutions start. It's people choose to no longer accept that illusion of power. And so I can imagine it must be a nightmare. And I, know, I met people recently that I used to work with in my organization who have become really senior. And it's like for the first five minutes of the conversation, I didn't have a clue what they were talking about. It's like they were speaking a different language. And then I'd, it depends on how, how friendly I am with them. I just say to them, what are you talking about? I don't, I don't understand this language you're using. I mean, I know the words and I know what they mean, but where have you gone? And then they'll sort of come back. But it's, I guess it's something that changes so gradually that you don't realize how much the organization seeps into you. And again, I'm not making this good nor bad. When I, when I left the corporate world after 20 years, it took me probably at least five years, I'm probably still doing it now, to work out what bits of me are really me and what bits of me were me in that organization. Um, and it must be like what a messy divorce is like, where you're thinking, oh, no, that, that shaking Stevens record is yours, but this, the cat's mine, or something like that. It's working out which parts of my identity, I don't know where shaking Stevens come from, by the way. Um, it's working out which parts of my identity are really me and which parts have I just learned it's like an adaptive behavior to exist in this environment right adopted parts of a collective identity if 
and ethics do come into it. But if the organisation, its is big intention is to, to do good in the world, then there's nothing wrong with that, of, of learning a language and a way of being that feels harmonious. But it's really weird, and it's, that's what I've become fascinated in ever since. And that's what I love for all the downsides of um, being independent, is being able to walk in and think, what's weird around here? What am I fascinated by? A bit like being a, um, oh, I've forgotten the word, uh, being like, a bit like being an, an uh, anthropologist, coming in and thinking, right, look, what are the traditions of this, this weird tribe that I've come across here? Um, and what happens if I, if I bring them up in a, in a gentle but curious way? We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back right after this. Better Conversations We all want to have them at work. Have you ever felt dread about an upcoming chat with a colleague you needed to have or had that sinking feeling when that meeting didn't go as well as you hoped? When we can provide a safe space in conversation, the other person feels able to open up without fear. As leaders, part of helping our team do their job effectively is to motivate and guide our people to deliver on their goals. And when we have successful conversations, we become more influential, encourage deeper collaborations and foster true connection at work. Did you know it's the number one skill that sets the top leaders apart from the rest? That's why we've created a 12-week online course hosted by executive coach Seherm Cyrene, helping you to navigate those tough conversations with skill and compassion. Enroll today at leaderswhocoach.today. So Steve, we've talked a lot about the work that you do and the observations that you're making stepping into organizations and their cultures. What are you good at, do you think, in conversation? If, if something captures my interest, my imagination... Then I just have sort of like an insatiable curiosity in a conversation. Um, I'm genuinely interested in in the experience of the other person, and I think what I'm particularly good at is is I mean it's part of it's part of the gift of dyslexia and neurodiversity is is spotting patterns, is spotting subtle patterns in conversation and conversations between conversations, and particularly having a number of conversations in organisations. I'm very good at spotting patterns and then presenting those patterns back and saying, what's this? I've noticed this. It's it's fascinating. And I think just because of the way my brain works, Mm -hmm. I will quite often in a conversation go off on a tangent, but I imagine it's sort of going off on a tangent, holding hands with the other person. So come on, let's go and explore this tangent and see what's down here. So I think there's a a level of listening and a level of of noticing when I'm in a good conversation. And the, the flip side of that is that if something hasn't captured my imagination or I'm not genuinely interested, it's, it doesn't really work. Um, I'm easily distracted by other things. It, it sounds bad to admit that, but I don't think you can fake interest, um, which is why I'll only work with organizations or individuals and that that fascinate me, that genuinely fascinate me and I'm genuinely interested in exploring with them. Um, and then that brings out that brings out the best of me. I think I always come out from conversations from a compassionate perspective to try and 
understand the perspective of others. And I, I spent three years with a friend of mine who's a Zen monk um, facilitating dialogue, like real rich uh, Bohmian dialogue around diversity and difference around the world. And they were some of the most powerful, moving, difficult conversations that I've ever been part of. And literally all Claire and I were doing was inviting people to bear witness to each other, to to regard each other's experience as valid with, with compassion and curiosity. So I think that's where I'm at my best and simultaneously at my worst. Okay, so you heard Steve talk about his time um, with a Zen monk and we got a little bit carried away in the first recording talking about all kinds of other things, fascinating things. Um, but it was um, sitting uncomfortably with me that we hadn't really touched on and explored this part of Steve's life. So I've asked Steve to come back and just share a little bit more about his three years with Claire, who's an ordained Zen monk. How did that come about? Well, I met Claire probably around 10 years ago, maybe maybe even 15 years ago, through um, an organization called Reloom, who are a small consultancy, and Claire is one of the founding partners. And the thing about Claire, and she'll take this in the right way, is what makes her extraordinary is her ordinariness. Because she's, as you've said, she's an ordained Zen minister, which I just use Zen monk as shorthand, it's easier to explain. Um, but she's also one of the pioneers of coaching in the UK, um, that pioneered coaching in the 1980s. And just, I think she trained as a psychotherapist as well, but just an incredibly wise person who, when you meet, is just so ordinary. And I'm fascinated by people like that. And I got asked to get involved in a piece of work that was, at a surface level, a diversity and inclusion project for a big corporate. This must have been around about, I don't know, 2013, something like that. And what this organization had done is they'd done all the traditional things of unconscious bias training, of um, talking about bias and having some like speak-up initiatives. They also had a coaching program for um, potential female leaders, all of which is great. But one of the things around culture shifting is it wasn't working in that messy, day-to-day, spontaneous nature of the culture. And I'd, I'd worked with the idea of dialogue. And by that, I mean the Bohmian, David Bohm's definition of dialogue before. And I'd learned a lot about its power in the process of peace and reconciliation. Um, one of my favorite quotes is from Daniel Barenboim, the composer who worked with the Israelis mm. and pa- Palestinians. And when I was studying at Ashridge, I was studying dialogue. One of his quotes was, progressive dialogue involves as much careful talking as it does often painful listening. And that just fascinated me. So I proposed to this organization that we might take a dialogic approach. And to my surprise, I got away with it because it's, it's not traditional and it's amorphous and it doesn't lead to some anything tangible. But the idea was we'd bring together men and women um, from around the world into this largely unstructured dialogue, which is basically an inquiry into their lived experience of working in this organization. And I needed a partner to work with me on this um, because as soon as I said yes to it, I started thinking, oh, how the hell am I going to do this? And it, I probably said it in the other half of the podcast. One of my mantras is to leap, then look. And it was that moment of, right. And the only person I wanted to work with was Claire because she deeply understands this dialogic approach. 
and some of the principles of dialogue around just sitting in the discomfort and bearing witness and practicing not knowing are fundamental to it. So I asked her and she said yes. And then we spent three years traveling around the world, getting too hot and sweaty in various places. And uh, it was an, a complete adventure. The question is, what did you do? What was, what was that work? What did it feel like for people to be involved in it? I always look back at it so fondly as some of the most profound and probably impactful work that I've done, but also the most challenging and, and scary work that I've done. And one of the, I think one of the important things in cultural interventions is having just enough structure rather than saying, right, there's no structure at all. We're going to get together and embark on some dialogue. Uh, I was careful to design the structure. Um, and, and once Claire was on board, we co-designed this whole thing. So the process was that we'd, we'd aim for an equal amount of men and women. The organization wanted to do it at a senior level. So we sort of said sort of the, the board minus one, two and three. I ideally wanted to mix it across the hierarchy, but we couldn't get away with that. Minus one, two, and three being the next layers down. Yeah, the next layers down. But those, those layers just below the board. And yeah. ideally, I would have liked to have worked with the board and with people from the coalface, people from the shop floor. But I think that was a stretch too far. So we'd convene these groups around about, we said, 12 to 16 people. And the idea would be to bring them together for eight hours of dialogue. And I'd worked with some other dialogue practitioners previously who who had had a structure of four hours and four hours with an overnight gap. And so then, so I just used that as the, as the basis for what we did, with the idea being that the overnight gap just gave chance to do what my Spanish friend says, which is consult with a pillow, allow stuff to marinate, mm. allow stuff to make sense. And then what we do with everyone that was up for it we had some really strict rules around this. One was it had to be consensual. And it's a weird word to use in the corporate environment, but voluntary, like you had to volunteer, you had to want to do it, wasn't a strong enough thing because people would feel compelled to do it. So we said this has to be consensual. You're there because A, you think it's important and you're willing to bring your whole self there. And then we had um, a, a sort of half an hour, hour pre-call with everyone that was coming on it. A, to get to know them a little bit and introduce ourselves, but mainly to say this is going to look and feel very different to what you're used to. And this was quite, um, to me, as a progressive organization in the, the fact that they was willing to give this a go, but also very mechanistic, very interested in measures and structure. And these pre-calls were really just saying to people, look, this is going to look and feel different. You're used to moving towards consensus, agreement, and action, and we're going to be deliberately doing the opposite. We're going to be holding you in these spaces of, of messy, messy confusion, and you're likely to leave with more questions than answers, but that's the intent. So we wanted to check with people, or at least tell them what they were getting themselves into. And then the sessions themselves, we had, a, again, a similar light-holding structure where we... Um, we, we shared some data, uh, the gender difference in, in the organization. And I, I, I always say when I'm just talking about this work, it started off being about female leadership. Because we took this dialogic approach, it ended up being about so much more. So it was a good way to start it. So after we'd shared, shared the data, we'd just asked people to tell their stories. It required a bit of help, not those surface level stories of my name's Jim and I've done this, 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 and now I'm in charge of this. We were really interested in people starting to disclose a bit more about their unique experience of life, both in this organization and, and outside of it. And the intention was to move slowly, I think. Normally, the introductions, in inverted commas, which you can't see me doing, 
introductions would be like five minutes at the start. But we made it the entirety of this first half of the day because it was more than introductions. It was starting to at least unconsciously notice the similarities and differences in the room. Because one of the things we were very conscious of, we were working with senior leaders. And by the very fact that they were senior, they had somehow either overcome or not been subject to the problems that other people um, had in the organization. So these surfacing live in the moment, in the room, these um, these similarities and difference was really important. And then people generally, at the end of this first four hours, we go back going, oh, yeah, great, I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Because they were imagining that tomorrow we were then going to have some incredible model that would make sense of it all and give them the answer. But what happened in that, those overnight bits was fascinating. And I'm indebted to the original dialogue designers that I worked with that came up with this. Because people would go home and chat with our families or, if they, or with our friends or they'd at least reflect on it themselves. And all we'd do the next morning is people would come back and they'd check in um, and we'd just say, that, how are you doing? How's all of this stuff sitting? And more often than not, people would say, I spoke to my wife about this or I spoke to my husband or my daughter or my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Mm. And I was really surprised at their perspective on it or we'd never talked about that before. Or someone that didn't live with anyone would be watching television and start to notice stuff. And I think that's the beautiful power of awareness is awareness gets a bad name because we think of it as some sort of impotent force. But that awareness is present in everything we do. We notice new things and it provides us with new choices. And then all we do after we've checked in is ask people based on, and it occasionally be a couple of stories to finish off, and this is, this is my calm description. The facilitator in me is thinking, oh, how the hell are we going to fit all of this into the eight hours? We need to get somewhere with it. So there's a, there's a sort of duck, uh, swan, graceful on the surface, legs going underneath experience for me. And we just ask people, so what are you noticing here? What patterns are you noticing? What themes are you noticing? What differences are you noticing? And it was there where some of the magic started to happen, where the norms of the organization would manifest in the group. Um, this pull towards agreement and away from difference because it may result in in conflict or there's a lot of aboutism and this is where as a dialogue facilitator we did much of our work so people would say well i think that men or this organization or in society which what i mean by aboutism is we're talking about something rather than as an abstract concept rather than our lived experience of it so all claire and i do would gently to say okay that's fascinating what is your lived experience of this being and keep bringing it back to the point where they were saying i met someone once and this happened and this is what i experienced and as soon as we got down into that area important differences started to surface and one of the other principles of the dialogue is that change and transformation happens in the dialogue when multiple opinions and um, experiences and perspectives are held to be true at the same time even if they're opposing so i remember really fascinating conversation verging on the edge of an argument between a, a gay Irish man and an uh, African-American man and a white American woman around whose difference was more or less disadvantaging. And again, they, everyone would immediately reach for some universal definition. But by bringing it back down to their own lived experiences, it created this um, like delightful awkwardness and prickliness that sitting in it for longer than we normally would without resorting to consensus, without resorting to resolving, 
ultimately led, led to a different depth of awareness. People left not knowing but activated and then were more likely to go back into the, the day-to-day flow of their work with this level of prickly awareness that would make them make change. And then we'd get them all back together around um, six or seven weeks later and just check in, just say, how's it been? What have you noticed? Not everyone came back on those things because people would get back into the day-to-day flow of the work, but that was data in itself. Or people would come back and say, I totally forgot about everything. Or people would come back and say, with that level of awareness, I cannot help, I cannot walk past stuff that I notice anymore. I just can't do it. So much awareness and and kind of fascinating also that for some, that awareness from what you were saying can disappear as well. Be conveniently pushed to one side or forgotten. What do you think that is? I suspect for me, that's come of a rounding off to fit in. So rounding off the the wobbly bits, the wonky bits, the bits of my attention and interest and things that I'm noticing that either I don't have words for or don't really fit in with the norm. So there's a bit of the rounding off. There may be a bit of a fear culture as well of what is it really like to, to speak from your own experience around here? And then a fear of judgment, I think, as well. The, the dialogues really helped me make sense of a number of things. So uh, the dialogues happened around the time when Trump was first elected. So when was that, 2018? I can't, I've lost track of time. 2017. So Claire and I were in Philadelphia about a week before the election. And that was also around the time of the Brexit vote in the UK. And those things happening at this time of dialogue was profound for me. Because irrelevant of, of how, I, how I see the world and what I think, the moment we start to reach for what, what, what we might call the generalised other, it starts to make stuff worse. So as a Remain voter, I might say everyone that voted the opposite for me is. And we experienced that in the US. Everyone would say Clinton supporters are this or Democrats are this and uh, Republicans and Trump are this. But this generalized other, I think, is a coping mechanism. It, um, to make the other wrong makes us feel better. And othering someone else avoids the inconvenience of seeing them as unique human beings, irrelevant of what they think. And I'm always careful to talk about this because... It's easily construed as not making a stand for something, or it's easily construed as being agnostic. But really, for me, it's a description of how society works, of how things change. And I think there's a difference between agreement, acceptance, and allowing. I learned that through the dialogues. Agreement may be black and white. I agree with someone, or I don't. I agree with Trump, or I don't. I agree with Brexit, or I don't. The acceptance may be, okay, I accept that a number of people think the opposite of me. I accept that. And I accept that some people think the same as me. I mean, no one thinks the same when you really get down to the intimate detail of it, but generally. But the allowing is that really difficult paradoxical thing that we, we try to hold in dialogues, which is allowing multiple different opposing perspectives to all be true at the same time without making them wrong. It's really difficult because I want to make people that don't stand for equality wrong. I want, I want to make people that oppress others wrong. And in one part, of, obviously, that's what I believe. But to think of how we change things like that through progressive dialogue, this space of allowing these things to be true at the same time, causing that really awkward, paradoxical headspace, that's where novelty emerges. And that becomes so profound in the dialogues that this need to resolve and compartmentalize and control and other, those moments were the moments we were furthest away from making any change whatsoever. The moments of dissonance, of, of like anger, of sadness, of elation, that was where the most potential was. 
if I dare ask, <laughs> what are you, what turns, what, what is it that turns you off in conversation? What are the things, is, what's the sort of lack of interest that turns you off? I think it's when, again, I really trust my intuition. It's when, it's when, as a good mentor of mine used to say, it's when the music and the dance doesn't match. It's when I'm thinking, oh, the words I'm hearing, and they don't seem to, there's something else going on here. It's either an ulterior motive, there's something that's not being spoken of. Um, and it depends on how brave I'm feeling. I'll, I'll name that in a conversation. But if we can't get past that, I rapidly lose interest because it feels like we're, we're not meeting at this honest human level. And I think the other thing that really that I'm really attuned to is status and power differentials. That if someone is taking a sort of superior or parental uh, superior or parental tone with me, or that there's something in that conversation that just doesn't feel right there, then I would disengage. And also, if the subject matter I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely not interested in, that's mainly in the corporate world. Um, but I think of the worst conversation, that, the most difficult conversations that I have would tend to be those social chit-chats at a party or a wedding. I'm so bad at them, I can't, I can't do them. I'd rather not go to those occasions, which is the whole, so what do you do? Um, you're going on holiday this year. And I know they're well-intentioned to build rapport, but it. It just makes me want to run a mile. I think, no, no, can't we talk about the nature of existence or something? That, that feels, feels far more interesting. I hear two ends of the spectrum about small talk. You know, there's value in it in some places, but I think, and, and you know, I, I personally, I think, okay, I can do that. But if we, if we don't go anywhere beyond that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> then that I'm with you, I, I tend to kind of, lose interest um and i think that's really important with with client work and it's just brought to mind um a new client i started working with probably two years ago where it was the i think it was the od hr partner had seen a talk that i'd done and invited me in and she was she was lovely and we just it's just like this conversation with you right now it's it just feels like a, a flowing conversation. We were both mutually interested in it. My conversation with her had been like that. And then she brought me in to meet the senior partner who'd be commissioning this work. And she was totally different in this environment. And I, I picked up on that early on and thought, what's going on? She seems totally different. And then this senior partner walks in the room and immediately I'm a friendly person and I, I don't go out to build rapport, but it's really, it's really important to me to do that. And he had no interest in that. And the first thing he said to me is, right, this is a really, this is a really senior group. Uh, tell me how you're going to wow them. Tell me how you're going to wow. Them. How are you going to guarantee that we get from you what we're paying you for? And in the moment, I thought, oh my God, what? And it's that little moment of, do I play the game or do I do I call something here? And it's that type of conversation that I just thought, no, I can't bear this. And so right from the start, I said, look, you and I both know that I can't guarantee anything. And then my, a little spiel around how organizations work. And he resisted it and come back and says, well, I've got other, other people that could probably say they could guarantee it. And we sort of stuck in this horrible tussle for a little bit. But in that, we developed this amazing trust that he softened. And then we were able to have a genuine conversation that, that we were interested in and saying, well, look, I've got 
here's some ideas that we might do, and this is what might happen. In my experience, these are the types of things that have occurred, but we don't genuinely know because we don't have a time machine. And so that that's that switch moment. That conversation could have gone either way. Um, and I've got more confident in that as, I, as, I've, as I've got older and more experienced, I think. So those types of sort of hollow conversations, the, the, yeah, the, so I think it's small talk or jargon or overly corporate talk that you can't rapidly get underneath. I understand the necessity of it to build rapport, to get to know each other, but unless I can get underneath that really quickly, I find it hard. It's not that I just don't like it. I find it hard work. I can't do it. Mm. It is hard work. It is because mm. it's it, it is a draw of energy, isn't there? Yeah. It, there's it, there's an, a massive effort compared to once you're in a conversation and it's flowing and it feels natural yeah. and, you know, you're riffing off each other, That that's effortless compared to yeah. that initial exchange. Yeah. And I think, I think I have a sense of where, without, it might sound really pretentious, I'll see how it comes out. I have a sense of where the conversation is coming from in the person. And I was doing um, uh, some supervision with an organization development group, a cohort for, on, a, on a program the other week. And again, in the world of organization development, OD, you'll, you'll be familiar with CHAM. Um, there's a particular language that they use. And again, I've listened to recordings of myself back when I was right in the heart of this. And I used to speak this language. I listened back to myself and think, what, what am I talking about? Um, and I was sitting in this conversation uh, just last week and I just gently said to the group is, but what do you mean? I don't understand what you mean. And they'd explain something about levels of system in organization dynamics and say back to them, yeah, I know that, but what do you believe? What do you think? And that was always the thing that would scupper people writing dissertations on the programs that I worked on is I'd read it and I think this all sounds very intellectual, but I can't see you in it. I, I've no idea having read this 20,000 word document of what's important to you, what you stand for, what, what you believe. And I think it's, that's something that I'm very attuned to. And if I can't get down to that, I'm actually meeting the person and witnessing the person and how they think and how they feel. Again, that feels too superficial for me. Mm. There's a lot, there's, it's almost like a mask, isn't it? That we sit behind the jargon. That's, it's supposed to be a shorthand for understanding what we're talking about, but it becomes bland and meaningless and intangible where it's supposed to be tangible. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you translate, Steve? You're an artist as well. How does this sort of spontaneity, this creativity, how does that manifest in your art? Right, I'm pausing. I'm pausing deliberately to see what the answer is. Um, for me, I, I've, and lockdowns made this even, even more apparent. I don't see a boundary between or a difference between anything I do is work or not work or art and not art. Um, because for me, the whole reason that I make stuff is it's my practice. I've often said making is my therapy. It's, it's a way of working. It's a way of nurturing a comfort feel with not knowing. Um, because I'll start on something and think, rather than have an intention of what it's going to look like, it's a process of discovery. I don't know what it's going to look like until it's done. 
So it's part of my self self practice, um, but it also allows me to explore different ways of being in the world, to to work in the world beyond words, and particularly the big conceptual art projects that I do are as much of a organisational intervention as that time when I made the board members bring in their own lunch. So if I think of something like um, a, a project I finished earlier this year, it was called The Sound of Silence. So it's a conceptual art project, and it was the world's first silent podcast featuring special guests. And that came from a process of thinking, it, it, it isn't, by the way, it isn't as... This is in hindsight, I know what this project was about. I didn't know at the start. But looking back on it, it was a, it's an intervention to disturb our addiction to distraction as society, our addiction to digital content. And it was every week for 100 weeks, I broadcast two minutes of silence that were recorded with a special guest. And again, I'm interested in this, what I call the process of re-weirdening the normal. By that I mean making the unquestioned norms just just to challenge them with something that's counterintuitive. And that's what this podcast did. And it provoked all sorts of reactions in people. Um, People found it wholesome. People found it meditative. People found it anxiety-provoking. People found it ridiculous. But as an intervention, the amount of people around the world that would download and listen to it and handful would write to me to tell me about their experience um but many others didn't that is where i see the power of art as we'd call it to do some to shift some fundamental patterns in culture there's a couple of um organizations and a festival that i'm the artist in residence for and I rapidly had conversations with them to say, look, if I'm going to be the artist in residence, it doesn't involve me just doing sketch notes of your conference because I'm really not interested in that and I wouldn't be very good at it. But if the art, if the role of the artist is to really bring something into awareness that w- through counterintuition, through some sort of artwork or conceptual artwork, then that's, that's incredibly valuable. Because I think artwork allows us to get closer or practicing art allows us to get closer to this really difficult thing of being spontaneous on demand, which just even saying that is um, is counterintuitive, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, it's, I, don't, I don't know how to answer that question in a way that would be satisfying to the way that me and the world would like to answer it, but it does. It just seeps through literally everything that I do. So your let me ask you this that that you said the silence podcast you understood it what it was about once you'd started it what was the feeling what was the motivation that that was so strong in you that you said I'm going to do this yeah all and there's a number of these projects that I can talk about and I'm smiling as you ask because they tend to start as just a tangential question that will come out come out somewhere. Again, there'll be a number of things happen that collides together that will form a question. So with the silent podcast, um, I, I run regularly. And I find when I'm running, it's sort of 
that whole inner critic voice, that whole sensible adult voice just disappears. I often joke that my inner critic's not fit enough to keep up with me and tell me my ideas are rubbish when I'm running. And just before I went running, um, I saw a tweet about the launch of some Leadership Hacks podcast, the, the 20 leadership secrets that leaders don't want you to know and all of that. And it, I just thought, oh, no, not another one. And again, I'm not anti-podcast. I'm on a podcast now. But I just thought as I was running that that podcast came back to mind. And I thought, have podcasts become too mainstream? Because for the handful of which I regard this one, that I'm just saying this to him, which I regard this one, the handful that are really provocative and artistic and important, there's so many others that it seemed like everyone had a podcast even though they had nothing to say. And so this, both my daughter and I, and it's, a, it's another superpower of dyslexia, have what we call our monkey mind, which is you have an idea, then it'll spawn something else. And before you know it, you're miles away from that original thought. So as I was running, I just thought, well, I, there's, there's too many podcasts. Uh, what would the opposite of a podcast be? Would it be a not podcast? Yeah, it could be a podcast that, that has no content. And then in that moment, I'm getting really excited thinking, this doesn't make any sense. Why would anyone want to listen to a podcast with no content? I'm going to say that again because I popped the mic. Why would anyone want to listen to a podcast with no content? Um, why don't I start a silent podcast? But what would make it even weirder and more bizarre is that I travel around the world recording silence with people that I then broadcast. And so that chain of thought happened. And one of the mantras in my work is to, is to leap, then look. Because with an idea like that, if I didn't act on it, the instant I got back from my run, I would talk myself out of it. My adult sensibilities would creep in. The, the self-doubting nature of society would start to creep in to me. So I got back, I registered the domain soundofsilence.org.uk and announced to the world via social media, I'm going to be launching the world's first silent podcast featuring special guests. And in doing that, I then sit down and go, oh, Oh, am I allowed to swear on this, by the way? Um, <laughs> <Once again. laughs> I sat down and thought, oh, fuck, I've got to do this now. I've no idea how to do this. But what was brilliant is I'd, I'd committed to it. Now, I could have backed out. I doubt everyone on Twitter and Instagram would have complained. But it meant that I'd created that constraint. And then I found my first guest, and then it snowballed from there. So it's that's how... And again, this is the power of not knowing. It's... Um, and I consider that an, a total embodiment of what I believe art is or creativity is. It's almost like it's the process of thinking through doing. Where you're not aiming to produce an outcome, but you're just, you've just found a really rich thread that you're going to keep on unraveling, knowing that you'll never get to the end. Um, and then if people react to it, if it causes some sort of disturbance in some way, be that good or bad, then that's been worth it. And that's how all the projects start is from a, a curious question. What I am particularly fascinated by um, is the technique of creating accountability to do it before you've talked yourself out of it. <laughs> because we do, we all have amazing ideas, right? Whether we're running showering, cooking, whatever, right? We have these amazing, um, amazingly creative thoughts. Um, but 
we are also really good at, um, as you say, self-censoring and um, stopping ourselves. And, and I think the, I can think of lots of, you know, as you were uh, talking about that, I, I could totally relate to the times when I've had creative thoughts, but for whatever reason, I've talked myself out of them. Well, then if you think you amplify that into an organisation of 100 people, 1,000 people, right. 10, 100,000 people, and that's all going on. And then you add in all of the additional defences. It's, like it's like a fortress of procurement processes where you have to prove what's going to happen before it's happened. Mm. Or you have to find out ways of measuring something that's never been done before. Then that's the overlap, um, I think, the, that we were talking about there. That's, that's where everything gets nicely, nicely stuck. Whereas it is possible, again, within some some boundaries, this idea of uh, safe uncertainty, you can do this in the corporate world. If you work out what are the absolute things that we can't let go of, but to give us that play space to, to do these types of things. Well, and, and this is it. How do you do that as an organization? How do you, <laughs> the word I want to use is not the right word. How do you build in a mechanism that doesn't squash that, that doesn't, that does allow people to commit and get permission to experiment and be creative before it gets knocked down. Yeah. And it's, um, I, don't, I, I don't know what the answer is, and I hope there isn't an answer really, because this becomes near impossible to do at scale. So if you think of just me, if there was me and one other person that was going to do this project, it would add complexity to it because there's our two interactions and our own two foibles and neurosis and projections and childhood traumas and all of that will come out in it and our defences. You add in a third person, that's just not an extra person. You've then got the nodes between those three people and it, the complexity develops exponentially. The fear develops exponentially. The inhibitions develop exponentially. So even by the time you've got to 10 people, it's become so unwieldy that it makes it more difficult. Teams take on their own identity, their own being as well. So it is, it's in, it, the way you describe it there, it's absolutely a complex. Yeah, and and I, I think it's okay. And I think as long as it's overt, if it's, we're an organisation of 100,000 people, realistically, we are not going to be in this configuration able to liberate uninhibited, spontaneous creativity in our people. And that's okay. We know at this scale we're not going to be able to do that. Let's try and get as close to it as possible, but let's not convince her, let's not con ourselves thinking that there's this magic thing that's going to happen. And that feels like a healthy, healthy sweet spot. Um, Realising the constraints of scale. Um, and the benefits of scale as well, but realizing that there is there is this trade-off. And it's why I much prefer to, to at least do the ideation process or to come up with ideas um, by myself and then get to a point when I can sort of present it to the world. But yeah, it's, it, that leap then look feels so important. Um, and then it invites everyone else onto it. It's, I think most people that get involved in my work know that I don't know what's going to happen. Um, 
but come along and see what happens with me. And that makes it compelling, I think. Fascinating, Steve. Um, we could talk for a much longer. Um, <laughs> what would be what would be one thing that you would ask of listeners to have a go at doing? I'm often asked um, what would be my one tip for being more creative or being a better leader, and I suppose it's the same answer for for, for the listeners. And that's to get really, really good at not knowing. And the follow-up question to all of that, to that is always back to me, how do I do that? And my answer is, I don't know. <laughs> You've got to work it out. <laughs> um, that's the wrong question. It's not the, it's not the good start point. But I, I think why I'm interested in the conversations where we allow ourselves to be unraveled by the conversation. We allow ourselves to be gently disconfirmed by the conversation. Because um, there's a, a Nietzsche quote I can never quite remember, but it's something like this. He says, "Learning to see the world as strange makes us unhome in the everyday, and it therefore restores it as a place of marvel." Um, so that, that's that's why I think getting good at not knowing is so important. It restores, it cultivates wonder, possibilities. Mm. Steve, this has been uh, wonderful, a wonderful exploration. Thank you so much. No, thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Better Conversations with me, Siham Cyrene. And if you did, leaving me a lovely review and rating on Apple Podcast will help me reach more listeners who want to have better conversations at work and in their private lives. You can check out show notes at betterconversations.co forward slash podcast. If you're a regular subscriber, brilliant, lovely to have you back. And if this is your first time, hit subscribe, leave a review and tell a friend. A screenshot and an Instagram story would be going above and beyond. And I would be very grateful. Please tag me at Siham Cyrene, all one word, S-E-H-A-A-M-C-Y-R-E-N-E. And of course, I'll tag you right back. So, what would you like to hear my future guests and I talk about? Or perhaps you would like to be my guest because you've got a strong point of view that you'd like to share or kick about with me on the podcast. Drop me a note, podcast at betterconversations.co. I'd love to hear from you. And if you are a leader who knows you could achieve so much more in your career and be way more influential by having better conversations and stronger relationships, then do consider enrolling for my 12-week online course, Leaders Who Coach. You'll find the curriculum, videos, and a whole load more at leaderswhocoach.today. Thanks for listening. I'm Siham Cyrene, and this has been a better conversation.